Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Fanciful imagery, to be sure. But imagining is the first step to creating, just as all the buildings and roads and gadgets surrounding us themselves found their first state of existence, or blueprint, in the imagination. As we dip our wings on this occasion, Edward Mason and I delve into the power and importance of mental focus and visualization. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Welcome back, Edward. Love is the law, love under will. Yeah, so I guess you uh, today you wanted to discuss imagery and mental focus. Yeah, because when I was trying to think about practical stuff in magic, I think the ability to deal effectively with control of imagery is perhaps maybe not the critical skill in magic, but one of two or three critical skills that just have to be mastered. Um, the old phrase from the, the Golden Dawn tradition is, for by names and images are all things, all powers wakened and reawakened. We memorize the names, you can get long lists of names of power and archangels and angels and planetary names and spirits and stuff. <clears throat> Those things are all published. Mastering the art of imagery is a difficult thing for some of us. Um, some people are very visually oriented and they can control an image with their mind for not just seconds, but minutes. That is fairly rare. I know I've had a great deal of difficulty controlling images. And although I sort of have come up with a few workarounds over time, mostly it was just a matter of, okay, I'm going to relax myself. I'm going to sit here in a darkened room and hold the image of a triangle or a hexagram or maybe the form of an animal uh, for X number of minutes and see how I you know, eventually could get myself into the particular zone where the image remains steady. On the one hand, you're fighting to control yourself, which is no good. On the other hand, it's easy to let your mind escape into something more interesting, which is also no good. And there's a particular relaxed attentiveness that we have to get to to make uh, imagery work. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, it's very common for people to not really be clear on what visualization is from the outset because... Uh, the idea that you're supposed to be seeing these things in your head, I think initially people tend to think, well, there are, am I literally supposed to be seeing things or, you know, but uh, we're talking about the imaginative faculty, are we not? We are talking about the, the imaginative faculty, yes. So uh, ideally you're getting beyond the, the, the image in the mind and actually beginning to see it in front of you, whether it's the pentagrams you just traced with a, a dagger 
or whether it's actually the appearance of some sort of astral being. The thing is with the imagery, it is what we use to create our sense of space. Without imagery, you don't have space. Sound gives you some impression of distance and the shape of the, the room or you know, whatever space it is that you're in, but taste and touch don't do much in that regard, nor does scent. Imagery, however, immediately begins to create a landscape for you or a roomscape, if you prefer that term. And that's what you're trying to do with magic. You're trying to get into a place, a state that is not the same thing as your own personal imagination. Visualization is an essential tool that you have to work on for that. And it does seem to be uh, central, as you say. Um, I mean, all the, the yogic techniques that uh, Crowley talks about um, in Libero and Libri, um, it, it almost seems like everything initially is just completely focused on mental focus in the initial stages. Yeah, and for a lot of people, it's a very tedious uphill grind. It was for me. Um, I don't have a good visual sense. Um, paradoxically, sometimes imagery comes to me with startling clarity, but it has no relevance to anything I'm doing at the time. Uh, but in order to do a good ritual, you have to get into this middle state of in having intention, but not tension. That is mindful meditativeness, I suppose. I mean, I don't know. You can throw a lot of words at it, but it's just simply something, a knack that you eventually get to. <clears throat> and you may be one of those people, I was, that I might say, okay, Mars is prominent in the sky during this waxing phase of the moon. I'm going to do invocations of Mars to explore that side of my nature. And I do four invocations, say. Um, two of them would be just, eh, the third one would be even worse. The fourth one would suddenly click. And I couldn't explain to myself necessarily why uh, my own pre-existing mood or the astrological conditions or the weather or whatever happened that day didn't seem to be a direct cause. And I just had to learn to be very patient with this. Um, I couldn't find the quote from Crowley where he says, says it far better than I can, but he does point out that sometimes you can do everything perfectly in an invocation. It just doesn't happen for some reason that is beyond your imagination. So you need to be able to deal sometimes with a lot of disappointment in invocations, just as you need to be appreciative of the fact that sometimes you really have done everything and you've gone into a place, an actual landscape, that you didn't dream up before you started, that it has imagery that conveys ideas and concepts and possibilities and emotions that you didn't anticipate. And that's the real you know, payoff, that's the real kick that you can get from a good invocation. But visual skill is essential for this. That brings to mind uh, in places where Crowley is, he talks about the idea of knack and having the knack for something. He uses golf as an analogy for that. Um, when you're able to put the the ball exactly where you want it to go, but when you're in, when you have that knack for it, 
Um, you're not you're not trying so much because you've put all that effort into the work and you've put all the practice in. You've got all the the motions and the grip and everything else uh, practiced to the point where you're not thinking about that those things. You're you've just got the knack and you make the ball do what you want. But you still have to work through 18 holes or at least nine if you're doing a short run. Um, mm -hmm. in order to make the thing happen. And he's very much aware there that it does. it's not like making something by engineering methods. You are dealing with the complexity of your own being, your own nervous system, um, your own ability to focus. And I think focus is the thing that really pays off here. Focus is not the same thing as ferocious concentration, and a lot of time can be spent, I know I, I did, just trying to relax bodily tensions to get to the mm -hmm. point where I could actually really move into the invocation. So even if it didn't work as well as I hoped, it would at least give me some sense of satisfaction that I'd tried everything and there was still some kind of energetic compensation for what I'd done, even if I wasn't seeing a hell of a lot or getting any particularly new ideas popping into my head. It's very analogous to playing a musical instrument uh, where, I mean, you have to practice something a thousand times so that you get the knack for it. Um, but also that idea of being relaxed. Uh, initially, when you're trying, uh, that trying itself is what causes the tension and uh, um, prevents you from completely just flowing with it. And so in during the process of practicing something over and over again, learning how to relax into it and allow it to happen seems to be uh, an important key that seems appropriate in terms of this kind of meditation that we're talking about as well. Yeah, music would offer a very good analogy. Acting would be another one. I mean, mm -hmm. why is it sometimes... Actors go on stage, they say everything with exactly the timing they wanted, and they feel it just kind of fell flat. And other times, suddenly they realize that that whole theater is complete, is people who've forgotten themselves, and they're in the drama with the actor. Or, you know, to use your first analogy, they're in the music with the musicians. They're not really there with their friends, they're there just in that experience of sound and how it's shaping an atmosphere. Because mm -hmm. Atmosphere is a key thing I've found in magic. Um, that sense that I've had at the very best invocations where I'm exalted or I'm taken out of myself or I'm aware of possibilities that I would just dismiss from my conscious mind in everyday awareness. Suddenly I've gone in somewhere where there is the possibility of extraordinary things happening according to their own set of rules. That's the paradox the magicians always have to deal with. Mm -hmm. It's not super predictable at all. Magic is really something that is always opening new doors. That's something yeah, when uh, uh, people talk about doing a particular invocation or doing a particular um, ritual for whatever purposes. Uh, I mean, I guess that hits on the idea of the success versus fail rate, which uh, maybe doesn't immediately come to mind to a lot of people who are in the earlier stages. It sounds like, well, you do a ritual and uh, um, 
some results will follow or you know the idea that you do the ritual once and it has its intended effects but uh, i think it's handy to remember the the term ritual implies regularity definitely yeah and of course results that you get are not always evident to you i i've done stuff that where i was convinced nothing had happened but I'd made a connection on some level, and the next day I could see that events happening around me seemed directly related to whatever I'd been doing the night before. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't my own example, but I did something once with a friend on the Wheel of Fortune. We were doing the, the tarot card. He was stuck in a job he hated. I mean, he was so fed up with this, but he couldn't afford to, to quit. So we did the ritual. He said, oh, that, that was kind of interesting, but you know, nothing spectacular. On the Monday, he goes into work. He'd made a huge, embarrassing error with something. On the Thursday, he finds out that he's fired. He then started looking around for jobs and stumbled into one at the university that, A, paid him 30% more than he was getting, and B, he said, gave him twice as much job satisfaction. Hmm. Now, that, that was a classic example of the wheel operating there, going from one guna round hmm. to the next one or, or on two clicks, whatever. Um, but he had no sense, and neither did I, when we did the ritual, that it was something that, um, that really accomplished much. But he was primed and he was the prism for that stuff and the energy went through and he could have fudged his way and said, I'm terribly so sorry, I'll grovel, grovel, grovel. Instead, the bus boss just got furious at him and said, you're out. <laughs> so he had to go and do the one thing he was terrified to do, which is go and find a new job. It brings to mind also, because I've, I've spoken to people who have done goetic magic um, right. and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess that usually that takes the form of, from what I understand, it takes the form of uh, you give them something, they give you something. Um, and so kind of in a similar way where uh, you provide something for them and then something in your life will adjust itself or readjust itself in that kind of way. Yeah, goetic magic can be like that. I haven't done a great deal with uh, Goetia. Um, what I did feel was that I, you tended to end up spinning your wheels, that you didn't necessarily get further ahead with goetic magic. You certainly produced a change in conformity with will, to use Crowley's definition of magic, but it wasn't necessarily something that paid off with the benefits that you were hoping for. So after doing a bit of it, I thought, eh, I'm not going to continue with this one. Mm -hmm. The opposite I found with um, Enochian magic, which can be very difficult. You're dealing with something quite extraordinary. Um, again, you need that ability to hold imagery, but it's indescribably different to anything else. The, the classic account with Enochian is the vision and the voice, Crowley's Libra 418, where he worked the entire system um, there's also David Shoemaker's Winds of Wisdom, where he worked through the, the system of the ethers as well. Um, and people are, both these authors and a couple of other things I've read by other people, 
indicate trying to deal with imagery that shifts and transforms. It's not necessarily behaving in the way that the physics we learned in high school tells us stuff should. It's very dreamlike, and yet it's uh, there's something else entirely that nobody can quite define, even the best Enochian magicians. But there is, and I'm quoting Jim Eshelman's phrase here, that there is an objective landscape. It's just the mind's ability, the human mind's ability to relate it to imagery is limited or we can't always work at the kind of speed that the Enochian world would um, want us to do. I think that, yeah, I, I guess uh, the fact of the matter is that we're working with our minds um, and that becomes, that can, I mean, infect the experience, so to speak, where um, another anecdote that comes to mind is uh, um, somebody who had been doing um, invocations of Jupiter, I believe, and and Jupiter would be uh, up here and be speaking in a very grandiose sort of manner. And uh, but the person had been oversaturating her mind watching a lot of The Sopranos in recent, <laughs> like in, at around that time. And so Jupiter started to slip into some of these uh, linguistic uh, patterns of from that TV show. Oh, that's marvelous. Yeah, I, I can just imagine uh, Jupiter as Tony Soprano. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we get all this stuff coming at us. So the, the news media can be feeding us a diet of despair. It can be rather hard to get into the magical frame of mind. And magic is always, well, yeah, but forward we go. Will continues to exist. Whatever changes happen in the world, we're going to move on. And the imagery you need to sustain from your own efforts, the imagery we need to be receptive to during a magical interaction is propulsive. It's forward moving. Um, but if you've had just a little bit too much inflation, war in Ukraine and upcoming food shortages, then it can easily skew the whole thing. And you start pushing the actual invocation away and filling the space that you created and invoked with your own darker thoughts. I guess that's where the, uh, I mean, that just all goes back to the the practice aspect of the mental focus. Um, Crowley talks about uh, the uh, doing will, saying will before meals and uh, doing resh and, and doing these kinds of practices and how they, uh, they create the habit so that your mind keeps coming back to the same place. Yes, you need to to focus on that. And you know, will is very well named. It's the two words, will and grace. There was a TV series based on that name. <laughs> um, the, the will is the propulsive force. Will is the forward-looking thing. Will is the thing that says, okay, whatever has happened has happened. How do we move on from this to either deal with what has happened or to go to the next phase or sequence of life. Again, visualization will come in because you have to be able to come up with some vague sort of an image for your own future. You can't just imagine future without imagery. Um, there's a famous exchange where 
Carl Jung wrote a forward to one of uh, D.T. Suzuki's books on Zen Buddhism for European audiences. And Jung was very suspicious of this idea of absolute emptiness, saying what, whatever state you've come to, there must still be an image pertaining to it. Hmm. However vague or general or just you see more brightness or you see... I mean, that's the thing in, in Zen, you know, suddenly there's this great flash of white light, supposedly. I can't speak from experience. Um, there's some visual component in anything that is moving forward. And visualization in its best sense, in its most appropriate sense, is always about what can be done, what you can go forward to. It may not be much from where you are if you're having a bad time or a bad day, but it's giving you something to work with to, to change your own situation. So that's another key benefit of being a trained magician, not just someone who's watched a lot of videos and bellows at the walls, that some people prefer to refer to implications, but someone who would actually work constructively with visualized imagery, can really hold those pentagrams or hexagrams when they're invoked, and can sustain the image of the spirit or the archangel or whatever it is that's been invoked uh, through the course of the ritual. Now, um, I guess we've got, uh, obviously, uh, like as mentioned, we have uh, the exercises in Libra O and Libra E. Um, yes. Are there other things you can uh, recommend to anybody who might be interested in, in getting a start or adding to their practices with with focus exercises? I think Libero and Libre E give us a good selection. Obviously, you've got to make your own decisions on what you're going to work on. One thing that I had a big difficulty with was the fact that at certain times, I would slip into the sense of, okay, I've done this, I've been doing this for years, haven't had a big breakthrough in a long time. And I had to discipline myself to just go back to the very basic exercises, just start again, retraining myself because I'd slipped into habits. I knew I could do some stuff, therefore I didn't bother developing the skills. And as you were saying with the analogy with music before, you, you, you've still got to keep practicing every day of your life if you're going to be a magician. You can't do a musician, <laughs> a magician as well. Um, you know, you need to keep on with that basic stuff and often just go back and say, today I'm going to set aside a half hour to visualize a, an octagon and it's going to be rotating in front of my vision and each face will have a different color. I mean, if you can make that hang together, uh, you can reinforce your skill quite uh, nicely. Yeah, it's true. You always got to be practicing the fundamentals. And uh, I think uh, from experience, going back to the fundamentals, particularly when you've left them off for a while or that sort of thing, um, you can gain new insight from that as well. It gives you a different angle of approach, a different experience and uh, different uh, appreciation you get the new insights and the new appreciation, yes. <clears throat> you also need to recognize that at certain times, your 
conceptual space for life expands. You are always moving into the unknown as a magician. That's one of the things about magic. If you're dealing with devotional religion, you have this image of the thing you're after, you know, whether it's Buddha, you know, Krishna, Virgin Mary, whatever, and you keep moving toward that. A magician will find him or herself in a space where suddenly the walls have moved further out. That can be very disconcerting. And you have to allow that new space. And again, as I, as I was saying at the beginning, space is directly connected to vision. It's our visual sense that enables us to precisely appreciate space. We have to expand our imagination to allow for being in a bigger world, a stranger world, and as magicians often, a rather isolating one. There's going to be nobody around you who can hear you describe what has happened and say, I find myself in a new darkness because the perimeter of my concept of my own existence seems to have stretched a great deal. And it can take you weeks or even in some cases months to appreciate just how that change has happened. Um, you know, most of your friends will say, oh, dear, you know, can I buy you a drink? <laughs> Obliterate the problem with alcohol. Um, so you're having to deal with an education that is coming to you through the medium of the imagery. That's what the magician is after. But it's by no means as easy to obtain and as straightforwardly lucid as you would find in Crowley's vision and the voice. I mean, that's an amazing piece of work. But this is a man who is completely away from civilization. They're in the Tunisian desert. They weren't that far, he and Victor Newberg, from uh, civilization. But you know, over a couple of sand dunes away from the nearest village, you really are isolated in those parts of the world. Um, here was a man who had done a lot of yogic training and he was able to hold his attention remarkably. I mean, the man had tremendous powers of concentration, Crowley, um, and he was always stretching them. He was able to come up with the vision and the voice as a coherent series of statements of what he underwent. So a lot of us will get stuff, and I've, I found this myself when I started Enochian work. It's like, what the hell was that? There were these beings like kind of humanoid insects and shapes that were sort of plants, but moving around. And there was some kind of Morbius loop in the, the landscape. I, I couldn't make any sense of it. Hmm. So trying to write a record in my diary, my magical diary was really difficult. Um, I can remember giving up at one point and having to, to come back to it later when I was more braced to deal with that. But this was a new kind of space that I was in. It just didn't seem to operate according to nice Newtonian or even Einsteinian principles of matter and energy. Mm -hmm. um, it had its own way of doing things. Dealing with that visual sense and learning to be flexible with it was key to being able to to go further into that work it seems uh, uh, you've you've you touched on the the idea of going away into isolation 
to do work versus, uh, you know, what we're normally doing is living our lives, uh, the vast majority of us, um, probably surrounded by society and and uh, all the daily distractions of uh, that are like incredibly distracting nowadays if you if you allow them to be. So clearly that's a, a factor as well. I mean that can seem like uh, just a frustrate an, an exercise in frustration trying to work on mental focus in this kind of an environment. How important is it to be able to extract yourself from society? versus work within it? You have to develop a, a flexibility here. I and mean, the last thing you want to do is completely cut off from society. Some magicians go nuts. And in fact, most magicians at some point are a little nuts. I know it's often said that if somebody has actually come to the point of knowledge and conversation, they're advised to avoid people for a few days simply because whatever they say, is going to seem like the ravings of a lunatic because you are equating concepts that are supposed to be nice and distinct. Um, a bit of travel helps because you find then just what the actual atmosphere and vibes are in the place you live in. Um, where I live, it's a small village in the mountains of Mexico. And I thought, oh, this will be wonderfully peaceful. I can do all kinds of magic. Um, it's also a village that from at least a thousand years ago had a goddess worship going on. Hmm. And I'm not entirely clear what the few people who are still involved with that are really getting from it. It Sometimes there's a linguistic barrier that we don't have enough shared language. My Spanish is still not great. But when I came here, I found the atmosphere was so heavy. Hmm. I literally couldn't do much with magic for about a year. I had to learn to fight it. And of course, when you give up fighting and you come to an accommodation, then you can begin to use the energy. But it's a very heavy earth mother type of vibe. And if you're trying to do something mercurial or you're trying to do something to do with Mars, that ain't going to go very well. It just falls flat. And you think, why am I standing here waving this wand around in my temple space when absolutely nothing is happening? Um, but what that did was make me much more aware when I come back to Toronto for visits of what the vibe is in Toronto. It's not as high energy as a New York or a Chicago. It's not romantic. Paris is a romantic city. There's just, it, 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 you look at some of those buildings and think, yes, you know, famous people have had famous loves on these streets. Mm -hmm. um, so a bit of travel gets you out of your own place's standard vibe and lets you be more aware of how that is influencing you. I mean, you can be aware of things like traffic noises, the tension of the subway or the, bus you know, the business district. You know, in Toronto, you go down Bay Street, it's a very different vibe to three miles away in a quiet shopping street further out and something that used to be its own village or town. But you have to train yourself to be aware of how 
atmosphere shifts from place to place. Again, we're dealing with place, we're dealing with space, we're dealing with what comes back to imagery. And the better trained your mind is to deal with images, the better it's able to give you an image of what is different about where you are living or working um, as opposed to another place you went to this morning or last night. Uh, one of those ideas that might pop into my head about uh, uh, what if I had an unlimited uh, source of uh, money or if money wasn't a factor, uh, one of the, what would I do with it? One idea is always, wouldn't it be great to have just out in the countryside somewhere uh, build uh, like buy, buy up some land and build a, a space as a retreat center? Um, what are your thoughts on that kind of a thing? Like, uh, uh, well, not specifically buying some land and building a retreat center, but, uh, the idea of being able to spend, you know, a couple of weeks, a month or whatever, a year, uh, going off on a retreat in order to supplement that isolation time. Well, I, I think retreats are something that Crowley recommends strongly and everybody at some point says, okay, um, Maybe we can't afford to just take off for a month, but you can isolate yourself and try and avoid social encounters for a few weeks. And that, that works well, even if you don't have the unlimited funds. I had an odd le lesson. Um, when I was living in Toronto back in the early 2000s, <clears throat> I had an apartment out near Hyde Park, and I had a very small temple space on one side of the bedroom, like four feet wide. So if I was spreading my arms out in a lesser ritual at the pentagram, one arm was almost touching the window, the other one was over the bed. So I used to sleep on the other side of the bed. Finally, when I came here and I built my own little house, and I had a, a room that was my own temple. I thought, okay, now, you know, we're going to cook. I mentioned before the difficulty I had with the overall atmosphere of the village. But when I finally got going, um, I found I didn't get as much of an intense atmosphere as I did in that little area of my bedroom, partly because I think I had to try so much harder in the small space. Hmm. But I can still look back and remember times, rituals that I did, simple stuff in that small space where suddenly the lighting in the room had changed completely. Hmm. Um, and I suddenly, I just had one little candle on the altar. There was no other light in there. There was curtains over the window. Um, I'm not that convinced that the retreat center thing works. Crowley tried Chefalu. He did it for two years in the early 1920s and was not able to go back. He did solitary retreats throughout his life. But I've got a feeling that the, the retreat center with this tradition doesn't necessarily work that well. What really works is your own hunger to make the magic happen. I guess that's true. Yeah, that I, I've had, I've certainly had plenty of uh, experiences where I'll have a week off or something along those lines coming up, and have all the plans in the world to make use of that time and just really get you know productive. And then once it rolls around, it just ends up you know disappearing without any of that productivity happening. So um, maybe yeah, being forced to make it happen is what is like an important factor. 
yeah, the, the struggle aspect, the ordeal of magic is always critical. Um, I just know with that small bedroom temple, I'd left somebody something in there one time and I told my friend, oh, you can go and grab that and bring it out. And she sort of walked in there and came back with her eyes wide and said, what are you doing in that space? <laughs> I, no one's ever had that kind of reaction to another space that I've worked in. I don't normally invite people into my ritual space for obvious reasons, but that was an unavoidable one. But she was really hit, huh. apparently, by a, quite a powerful presence that I'd had to work up. I think you have to recognize there's always an anti-will operative for any magician it's the one that says, oh, I can't go on. I've done enough. This is getting boring. I can't handle the politics of this group, um, and so on and so on and so on. They're the 101 good excuses that are you know, available anytime you need them. Um, will requires to, us to keep trying to overcome that. At the same time, getting into what I was saying earlier, that zone where there's the balance of intention, clear intention, but also an openness of mind to accept what's going to come back. So, you know, good luck if you get the cash and set up your retreat center. <laughs> I'll be happy to visit you there. But um, I'm not sold on the idea of the retreat centers. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that really works, except for short intervals when you get together with a few friends for a long weekend or a week, um, or go off on your own for, you know, 22 days or something to get something accomplished otherwise hmm. no just keep on doing what you're best at keep an eye out for part two of our discussion on mental focus as usual look for toronto Fulim on instagram facebook and youtube and watch for events in the city and i look forward to convocation once again in the darkly splendid abodes <laughs>